Good morning, everyone. This weekend happens to be the 4th of July, the anniversary of the day that the American colonies broke away from England in 1776. These iconic words from the Declaration of Independence are words we all learned in grade school. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now on first take, as we hear these words today, we would think this statement would apply to everyone, to be self-evident. But the crazy thing about words, they can merely be an ideal and not a reality. Words are always subject to interpretation and application, often dictated by those in power. And we know from our country's history that sadly, this statement, all men are created equal, was not and is not true for every man, woman, and child. Some of you are thinking, how can that be? Isn't all men are created equal clear enough? Well, not take it literally, one could have made the case that women and children are not included because technically they are not men. Or if your perspective, for example, is that say only whites are human and people of color like black, brown, red, or yellow are not, you can justify treating them like slaves, animals, property, or the plague. In fact, back in the day, the U.S. Constitution had at one time each black slave counted as only three-fifths of a man. Thank God the Constitution can be amended. Racism has been a problem with our country from the get-go, and we are still dealing with it in our current times. Racism is the belief that groups of humans possess different behavioral traits corresponding to physical appearance, and groups can be divided based on the superiority of one race over another. We are currently in a messy series called Who's My Neighbor? And we are learning together what the Christian response ought to be for social and racial justice and to understand God's perspective on racism. I remind us of the words of James who called our faith to action. In James 2, James told us, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Faith without works is dead. That's why if, if we recognize our neighbors experiencing racism, we need to take action individually and as a church community to be anti-racist, to oppose racism and prepare to change systems and structures that support it. Talking about it is not enough. As Jane said, tangible works of justice show our real love for our neighbors, those who have been marginalized and oppressed. That's what Jesus would have done and commanded us to do likewise. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did it for me. So why get involved? Do you believe God is against racism? From what I can see from God's word, God opposes it. God himself is anti-racist, so we should be too, in both word and deed. Now I repeat, God is anti-racist, so we should be too, in both word and deed. Now, I imagine some of you are thinking, wow, that, 
that's a no-brainer. But sadly, God's word, just like the words in the Declaration of Independence, is subject to interpretation and application by people. Although God is anti-racist, imperfect people can struggle with racism. In the Bible, God had to address this problem over and over again with his followers. And it is important for us today to learn from those stories because historically, the church in America has been divided on race. We just have to look at the example of slavery, which divided Northern and Southern Christian churches. How can people read the same Bible and come up with opposite positions on race and slavery? During the series, Pastor Andrew spoke with the case of Jonah, who was resistant to go on a mission to the Assyrians because Jonah struggled with racism. I previously spoke about the Jewish lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who had a hard time admitting the Samaritan showed compassion because of his racism towards him. Today, from the book of Acts, I'm going to tell the story of when the early church leadership stopped systemic racism from happening. But before we go there, I want to start from the beginning in the creation story to establish a truth about humans. So let's turn together to Genesis 1, verse 27. And from the beginning, God created mankind as special. Of all the things in creation, he created only humans in his image. Reading Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And at the end of the sixth day, in verse 31, God, looking at everything that he had made, said, it was very good. Now, in contrast, in the first, day, first five days of creation, God only said it was good at the end of each day. But here on the sixth day, you get the impression that the creation of men and women was awesome and wonderful. It was very good. So take a moment, go ahead and say, I am made in the image of God, and it was very good. Say it again. I am made in the image of God, and it was very good. Now, doesn't that feel great? That's a reminder that God loves you and that you are special. For some of you, you need to hear these, these words right now because you aren't feeling appreciated or affirmed by those around you. God is also a creative God. So he made us diverse and not all the same. God made people not monochromatic, but multicolored. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 7, 9, heaven will be a place filled by worshipers from every nation, tribes, peoples, and languages. Revelation 7, 9 reads, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. God sees all humans equally, no matter what color, as precious and sacred. Nowhere in the Bible does God seem to say one race is superior to another. But sadly, we don't necessarily see other people the same way as God sees us, as equal images of himself. Sin and brokenness entered the world, and mankind develop pride, where we don't just think we are good, but taking it further, believing, I'm better than you. Men and women 
looked at other groups of people and said, you are not equal to us. We are superior and you are inferior. This is discrimination, which can be based on many factors, skin color, race, ethnicity, language, gender, faith, social class, education, to just name a few. The more factors that come into play, the greater the oppression. This bias attitude leads to exploitation, abuse, persecution, and marginalizing of others. And we see this in the Bible if we look for it. God had to deal with this prejudice in the early church because if left unaddressed, God's mission to spread the good news of Jesus to the world would be hindered, let alone fulfilling his command to love your neighbor as yourself. In Acts 10, verse 9 to 16, God gave the apostle Peter a vision to correct his racism. Starting with verse 9, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. God was preparing Peter, who was ethnically Jewish, to preach to the Gentiles or non-Jews. But you have to understand that Jewish people and even Jewish Christians in biblical times looked at Gentiles as heathens, as dirty, filthy, filthy animals. They literally called them dogs. The Jewish people back then struggled with racism, but God's message of salvation was for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. In Peter's vision, the animals, reptiles, and birds were unclean. Peter, as a good Jew, would not associate with anything that was unclean, let alone kill and eat it. That would be so disgusting to him by culture. But God told Peter to not call common what was made clean by God. Peter had at that moment an aha time with God when he realized God was telling him Gentiles who were once unclean were not common and can have faith in Jesus Christ, just as the Jews. And Peter proceeded to convert the Roman centurion Cornelius, a Gentile, to the faith. God loves the whole wide world and wants all nations, all races, to be in his family because God is anti-racist. So we should be too, in both word and deed. But still... This racist attitude by some Jews toward Gentiles in the early church led some to want systems and structures that would, in essence, perpetuate racism to be exclusive versus being inclusive. We see this in Acts 15, when a group of Jewish Christians in the early church known as the Judaizers wanted to have non-Jews circumcised like Jewish law required of Jews. 
The Judaizers wanted Jewish customs and practices to be adopted as a requirement to be saved. They wanted Gentiles to be like them. This controversy went all the way up to head office to be dealt with by the apostles and elders at the Council of Jerusalem. From Acts 15, starting with verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Peter's application for us here is when Christians see injustices like racism, you don't sit still, but stand up to speak against it. And Peter proceeded to tell about the Holy Spirit doing great work within the hearts of Gentiles, sharing evidence that Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just like Jews. Back to verse 10, Peter continues, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our, our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter, as a result of the vision God gave him earlier, urged the council at Jerusalem to not institute systemic racism against the Gentiles to place a special burdensome bar to jump over by requiring circumcision for salvation. But instead, God's grace was enough and adopting cultural practices was not needed. Because God is anti-racist, we should be too in word and deed to love our neighbor, even if from a different culture than ourselves. Last week, our, our worship director, Caitlin, spoke about privilege and, and privilege comes from power and power is needed to support privilege. Power and privilege can be neutral, but often if power is used to support one group over other groups, making that group with power to be superior and others inferior, whether consciously or unconsciously based on race, that's racism. Historically, this country was formed by white dominant culture Systems and structures are naturally formed to maintain that societal order, which ensures power and privilege for the dominant culture. A close friend and colleague, some of you know him, Pastor Aaron Roy, posted on Facebook data supporting overwhelming evidence of a certain group controlling Congress. From 1774 to 2016, there have been over 12,000 people who have Look, have, have served in Congress. That's 240 plus years. In those 240 plus years, only 3% were women or people of color. Of that 3%, one third of them are serving right now. So the other 97% have been white men for 240 plus years. Hmm. Just think about that and come to your own conclusion. This is systemic power and structure, structuring for the continued flourishing of a particular race of people. This privilege, this power creates systemic racism. 
Systemic racism is racism expressed in the practice of social and political institutions, including criminal justice, unemployment, healthcare, political power, education, and housing. And I have personal history with the last one. When my family moved out from the outskirts of Chinatown, the house my parents wanted to buy was in in outer district of the city. Mind you, this was before the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which explicitly prohibited racial discrimination and legally sanctioned redlining policies. Redlining, if you are not familiar with that term, is the practice of keeping people of color out of certain communities and neighborhoods and restricting, restricting them to only certain parts of the city, which are labeled red. So back to my story. The owner that we were trying to buy the house from was getting pressure to not sell the house to my family because we were not white. He eventually agreed to sell when my father threatened to take him to court. Even though there are laws against it, racially restrictive covenants and the practice of redlining by realtors and lenders still exists. Old habits and customs are hard to break. Jesus calls us to sacrifice, to love others in his name. In contrast, dominant culture and the privilege use four ways to exercise their power to do the exact opposite. The first is exploitation. And we see this in our history of our country through slavery, coolie labor, migrant workers. The second way is extermination. And sadly, we saw this with genocide with the Native American Indians. The third way is demonization, like Asians as a yellow peril or Chinese virus, and African Americans as criminals or thugs. And lastly, there's assimilation or indoctrination. Assimilation is the process by which different cultural groups become more and more alike. When minorities adopt the norms of the dominant or host culture, they often lose intentionally or unintentionally aspects of their own culture in the process in order to coexist. And we saw this in the example of the Acts 15 story, when the Judaizers wanted Gentiles to assimilate to Jewish culture by getting circumcised. Now, I know some of you out there are thinking, I can see the first three ways are obviously bad, but why is assimilation terrible? Isn't that what we or our ancestors needed to do to fit into this country and find success? Those of us who are Asian Americans, we have been labeled the model minority by the dominant culture. One of the earliest uses of this term was in 1966 by a white sociologist in the Time Magazine article as a wedge against other people of color, especially towards African-Americans. Dominant culture would point to Asians and tell other groups, why can't you be like them Asians? And as Asian Americans in our striving to assimilate and achieve the American dream, we compliantly bought into that label and proudly told other groups, yeah, we did it, why can't you? This created tremendous resentment and division with the other minority groups. And as people who follow Jesus, we should cringe if our success causes us, as Jesus warned, to gain the whole world but lose our own soul and to divide instead of to unite. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Adapting to dominant culture has benefits. I mean, our ancestors had to survive to blend in, to get our foot in the door, to be allowed into the room, or even better, to sit at the table to eat. But I want us to think seriously. I mean, working hard is good, but why in the first place do we have to prove ourselves worthy to be included in American society? Realize who is making up the rules, rules that can make it easier or harder for you about who gets to enter the room or sit at the table. And working hard will not break certain glass ceilings because the rules won't allow it. Plus there's a dark consequence to assimilation and that's self-hatred and culture erasure, which is an insult to God. When I was a child and the butt end of ethnic jokes, there were times I wished I was white-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed like other kids in the neighborhood. When the messages around you are telling you you are inferior, you eventually believe them. The moment we try to be someone we are not, we are telling God and our ancestors, you made a mistake, and that is so wrong. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Do you honestly feel that way in your soul right now? God is saying to each one of us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made and don't let anyone tell you otherwise that you are inferior or less of a human. Don't lose your God-given identity for a false one given to you by dominant culture or anyone else. God is anti-racist, so we should be too in both word and deed. So what are we to do to be anti-racist? How are we to love our neighbors as Jesus calls us, especially when we see them experiencing racism? Actually, first, do we even see them as our neighbors if they are different from us? Are they to you made in the image of God? Heart change must be part of what we do to be anti-racist. Just thinking or saying racism is wrong is not enough. Our words need to be followed by action. As James reminded us, faith without works is dead. Whatever we choose to do to oppose racial injustice, we must expect to do uncomfortable things. Change does not usually come by being comfortable. We all know the saying, no pain, no gain. To love your neighbor, to fight against racism, to change systems and structures that support discrimination and privilege for the select will require being in uncomfortable places. Being anti-racist is more than changing our thinking, but also in taking proactive action. And that will definitely take us out of our comfort, comfort zones. For some, it's going on a protest march. For others, it might be those difficult conversations with family members who struggle with racism. I wanna give a quick plug for the racial justice small group curriculum that is coming out from our church. This six-part study will allow you to go deeper on this topic and to delve into tangible applications that fit you because one size does not fit all. Home groups will be invited to use it. For more information, you can contact the staff or Kristen Fu, who is leading the creation of this study material. 
I'll end by encouraging all of you that you can do this. We can do this because we have God on our side and he will help us do racial justice because it is our heavenly father's heart to do so. God is anti-racist. So we should be too in both word and deed. Love your neighbors, no matter what their color, because all are created in his image, fearfully and wonderfully made. God opposes racism, so we should do likewise and not stand still, but stand up against it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, may the work of my hands and my feet be pleasing to you. Amen.